0: Today on Inside Politics, all paths lead through Michigan. President Biden is on his way to a must-win state, trying to lock down key voting blocks that could give him an edge in that tight battleground. Plus, gut punch. That's how Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is describing his prostate cancer diagnosis as he admits for the first time publicly that it was wrong to keep his surgery and hospitalization private. And a CNN exclusive, the district attorney leading the Georgia election case against Trump is refusing to step down amid allegations she had an affair with the lead prosecutor. We'll tell you why she's defiant. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We start in Michigan, where President Biden is about to meet with a group of voters critical to winning this battleground state, union workers. Just hours before the president's trip, CNN learned he plans to issue an executive order targeting violent settlers in the West Bank. The White House is clearly hoping that will help with another key constituency in Michigan, Muslim Americans. CNN's M.J. Lee is in Detroit, where the president is heading. M.J., you broke the story about this executive order. What more can you tell us about what's behind it, uh, aside from what appears to be pretty obvious politically?
1: Yeah, Dana, you know, this certainly takes aim at an issue that has has been of a growing concern for President Biden and his White House. And that is the intensifying settler violence. against Palestinians in the West Bank. We've heard the president uh, condemn this kind of violence. We know that privately he has spoken uh, with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And we're just getting this the details of this executive order that is coming today, uh, which would impose sanctions on four Israeli settlers, we are told, uh, who have been accused of engaging in these kinds of violent acts against Palestinians uh, in the West Bank. Uh, all of this, of course, uh, comes at such a critical moment for this president as he has come under growing pressure uh, over the Israel-Hamas war. Uh, Of course, there has been a lot of criticism for the president's support for Israel uh, as the war has continued on. Uh, and uh, a lot of people have sort of said he is responsible in part uh, for the humanitarian crisis uh, in Gaza. And uh, we've seen his political support eroding among some younger voters, progressives and uh, voters of color, including among the Arab American community. And uh, there is a significant Arab American uh, population here in Michigan, which is where the president is headed this afternoon. Now, the plan for this afternoon is for the president to meet with members of the UAW, The campaign uh, is obviously trying to capitalize on that coveted political endorsement that he received uh, last week and for now uh, there aren't any official uh, plans for the president to meet with any uh, leaders or members of the Arab American community, but that's a space that we'll be watching really closely as again the president is trying to feel these criticisms these concerns and trying to make sure that the erosion of support that we have seen so far that uh, doesn't become a bigger erosion and a bigger mm-hmm. uh, problem as we head into November.
0: Thank you so much for that reporting, MJ. And now let's go to the heart of uh, the area where Arab Americans live and could help determine whether or not uh, Joe Biden will actually take Michigan again. Jeff Zeleny, you are there. You have been doing a lot of reporting on this. Uh, Give us a sense of what you're hearing on the ground there.
2: Well, Dana, this is one place where President Biden will not be coming today. In fact, he will be going to uh, Macomb County, just north of uh, Detroit, talking, as MJ was saying, to UAW uh, workers, talking to uh, some of the employees who he helped win and negotiate Uh, that uh, settlement and the new contract last year, but will not be coming here to Dearborn. And this is, as MJ was saying, the heart of the Arab American community here in the United States. And there is raw anger at the president's policies. There is certainly a discontent and distrust at this administration. Uh, We attended a rally last night here in Dearborn. Here's just a glimpse of the sentiment voiced by former Biden supporters here in Dearborn. We are saying to everybody, that we are not going to sit down with this administration or this campaign. They have to call for a ceasefire. He could make a phone call tomorrow and put an end to all of this. He has chosen not to. And so we say with a very clear and loud voice, shame. Shame. We say shame. Shame. They think we're gonna forget. Are we gonna forget? No. Are we gonna forget? And of course, this is about the November election, Dana, but there will be a test case far before that, and that is February 27th. That is when the Michigan primary will be held, and there is a sense of, uh, of uh, voters here voting uncommitted. Perhaps you can see behind me here, a truck has just pulled up, knowing that we're doing a live shot here. But Dana, this is a bigger piece of this building the coalition over the next 10 months. It's a challenge the Biden campaign knows they have, but it's one of the reasons the president is coming here, and of course, they hope to privately perhaps meet with some leaders It's Unclear if that will happen, but there is no doubt. Michigan is at the center of the Biden reelection strategy for the next 10 months. Darren,
0: that is a very clever uh, driver of that vehicle behind you. Look, they're even backing up so we right. can see more of it. <laughs> Jeff, you're just too famous. They, they find you wherever you are. Appreciate that reporting. I want to bring in my great panel, uh, CNN's David Challion, CNN's Elena Treen and Tia Mitchell of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I just actually want before I dig into the demographics, I want to start where uh, Jeff left off. And I know that you have talked about this a lot. And by this, I mean the map and the road to 270. And we're, we just sort of played with this. We don't have you at the wall, so we're just gonna do one snapshot. Imagine a world in which uh, Donald Trump in November, assuming he's the nominee, wins some of those uh, states in the Sun Belt, Arizona, and then go south to, uh, to Georgia, okay? So he doesn't, Joe Biden doesn't have that on his side.
3: And Nevada, you've given And Nevada, that.
0: thank yes. you. Look at where Joe Biden is. We have Michigan in yellow. Michigan has 15 electoral votes. This is just one example of many, how critical Michigan is to any Joe Biden win.
3: Yeah, 15 electoral votes, if that were to flip blue from yellow, uh, Joe Biden would be reelected president of the United States. It's, It's that simple. Now, it's also hard to imagine a world where Biden is winning Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, and Michigan is not really competitive because some of that DNA is is similar. But we see a specific Michigan issue Mm -hmm. in what you just saw from Jeff's reporting that has Michigan, I will tell you from my reporting, uh, chief among equals in that blue wall in terms of areas of concern Mm -hmm. for the Biden campaign.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right. There's similar DNA in that quote-unquote blue wall. But what does make Michigan different is the significant Arab American community there. I want uh, you all to listen to Debbie Dingell. She is a Democratic member of Congress who represents uh, big sections of that community.
1: People need to understand what's going on in Michigan with so many of these Arab American families
0: who I've known forever. They have family, they are Palestinians. We got to address this. It's just clear and simple. It's gotta be addressed. It's so interesting because I I actually had the mayor of Dearborn on earlier this week uh, who said he didn't want to meet with the president's campaign manager. He wanted to meet with people at the White House to talk policy. So today, which hasn't happened, and what happened today? The president's going and he's focusing on union workers. And as far as I can tell, there's no, I mean, maybe there's something in the works, but that hasn't happened yet.
4: Yeah, I think it's so interesting because for Biden, this is an issue, particularly um, with the Israel Hamas conflict, the concerns of Arab Americans, but we know there are concerns from Jewish Americans and um, there are concerns from uh, national security and defense hawks about how Biden responds to the conflict, how he responds to calls for ceasefire, which is quite frankly, the, the the line in the sand for a lot of um, a- Arab Americans, they want ceasefire, and the fact that Biden, although he's called for a lot of things, he stopped very short of a ceasefire is problematic for them. Um, but I think it would be problematic if he were to call for a ceasefire with a yep. very different constituency, and that's the difficult position President Biden finds himself in. The uh, the final point I want to make is. I thought it was interesting when Jeff said there's a a campaign in the Michigan primary Mm -hmm. for some of those voters to say not committed. They're not saying they're going with another candidate right now. Mm -hmm. They're saying they're just not gonna necessarily vote for Joe Biden in the primary. Yeah, they're keeping their powder dry. And obviously, you
0: know, a lot of times you hear elected officials saying, I'm not gonna follow the polls on this. I'm gonna do what's right. I genuinely think that in this situation, um, that's where Joe Biden is, which is uh, and which is in a place where he thinks that Israel should have the right to defend itself. But even now, he's trying to, given the fact that it's been so long, trying to do something, definitely stopping short of a ceasefire. We can talk about that policy later on. Let's zero in on the union vote in Michigan and elsewhere. Uh, you covered Donald Trump, and what is so interesting and has been since Donald Trump has been on the political scene is the way that he has uh, taken some of the sort of rank and file union vote to, from Democrats. And if you just kind of take a look at where the latest polling is, this is uh, union households in swing states, dead even. 47 to 47, and I want our viewers to listen to what Donald Trump said as he was very actively courting the endorsement from the Teamsters.
2: Usually a Republican wouldn't get that endorsement for many, many years. They've, they only do Democrats, but in my case it's different because I've employed thousands of Teamsters and I thought we should come over and pay our respects. And uh, as you know, a big part of the voting block uh, votes for me, a very big part.
5: He's not wrong. He's not. And this is a core part of the Trump campaign strategy, particularly in states like Michigan, but also Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, the states that Trump won in 2016. But Biden uh, ended up flipping for himself in 2020. They want to peel away not necessary leadership. We know that Sean Fain, the president of the United Auto Workers Union, came out and endorsed uh, Biden last week. But they're really going after these rank and file members, many of whom did support Donald Trump in 2016, that they think they can pull away and peel away from Joe Biden. And that's also part of their large working-class voter argument. They really have been ramping up their messaging and their strategy in these key battleground states going after the working-class vote. And they do see organized labor as being a key part of that. But again, you know, it is typically a Democratic voting bloc, and so that's another thing they're reconciling. And
3: Biden showed more strength than Hillary Clinton did with that voting bloc. Yes,
5: yes. Such an important point. Donald Trump, I think, would love the endorsement of the
0: Teamster's uh, leadership we'll <laughs> as well. Everybody stand by. Up next, a remarkable moment at the Pentagon. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin apologizing for not properly communicating his cancer diagnosis and treatment to President Thank Biden, you everyone for being Pentagon here today. staff, it's and the general public.
4: Kara Swisher and I spoke before a live audience of students and professors at the Sign Institute of Policy and Politics at American University. The former tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal is on a massive book tour. Her memoir is titled Burn Book, A Tech Love Story. It's not the tech that's the problem. It's the people
5: manipulating the tech. So I guess you could say I'm an activist. I'm an activist for unaccountable power, not being unaccountable. Listen to The Assignment with
4: Audie Cornish on Spotify.
0: Just a short time ago, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin spoke publicly for the first time about his battle against prostate cancer and his failure to immediately disclose his illness and his hospitalization to the president. Secretary Austin says he apologized to the president and admitted he did not, quote, handle this right.
7: But I want to be crystal clear. We did not handle this right and I did not handle this right. I should have told the president about my cancer diagnosis. I should have also told my team and the American public. And I take full responsibility. I apologize to my teammates and to the American people. Now I want to make it very clear that there were no gaps in authorities and no risk to the department's command and control. At every moment, either I or the deputy secretary was in full charge. And we've already put in place some new procedures to make sure that any lapses in notification don't happen.
0: CNN's Oren Lieberman joins us live from the Pentagon. Oren, you were at that press conference. Tell, tell us what it was like.
8: Dana, this was our first chance to ask questions of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in more than a month. And it was really our first chance to see him in person since he returned to the Pentagon on Monday after nearly a month in the hospital following complications from that uh, procedure to treat prostate cancer. It was notable, and you see it right there, as he walked up to the podium for his opening statement, he was visibly walking slower and visibly limping. He said he is recovering, and recovering well, but he is still feeling pain and still undergoing physical therapy for treatment for the pain that he's feeling. Unclear, he said, on how much longer that will take, but he said he is still expected to improve uh, the feeling, the ability to use his leg there. So this this whole medical procedure is ongoing. You heard him a moment ago an apology for his failure to notify the administration, the president, the public, and the press. He was pressed repeatedly on why he made that decision. He says there was no order given neither by him nor his staff members to keep this secret or to keep it hidden. He was also pressed on whether there was a culture of secrecy. He insists there was not a culture of secrecy around this. He says the news when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer in early December shook him like a gut punch, and his instinct was to try to keep this private And to handle it privately, a uh, a decision, he says, in hindsight, was a mistake for which he apologized, including directly to President Joe Biden. Whether his staff or uh, or discussions around what his staff may have said or instructed, he said that will be part of an ongoing 30-day review that's frankly due in just a few days now. I had a chance to ask him. First, would he commit to making that review public, and second, would there be any consequences for his chief of staff, Kelly Maximin, because the Pentagon has said she is the one who should have passed on notification to the administration, but she didn't, because she had the flu. Listen to this. Has her chief of staff, Kelly Maximin, offered her resignation, or have there been discussions about her resignation in the wake of the failure to notify?
7: Um. I commit to being uh, as, as transparent as possible uh, and, uh, and sharing as much as possible. Um, uh, Oren, you'll understand that because this is a command and control of uh, policies of, uh, of our government here, there'll be uh, elements of this that are classified.
8: And your chief of staff, has she offered her resignation? Uh, she has not. Austin was, of course, also asked about the U.S. response to a deadly uh, drone strike on Sunday. He said of the Iranian-backed militias in the Middle East, they have a lot of capabilities. I have a lot more. Mm-hmm.
0: Oren, thank you so much for that reporting. Our panel is back here. I just want to play a little bit more uh, so that people uh, who might not have seen it get the flavor of the way that he was really peppered with all kinds of questions about what went wrong.
7: To answer your question on whether or not i directed uh, my staff to conceal my hospitalization from anyone else the answer is no i asked uh, my assistant to call the ambulance i did not direct him uh, to do anything further than just call the ambulance Uh, and so what he said uh, and why he said it i think that should come out in the in the review as well i'm not sure uh, at this point uh, what exactly happened but i think details Uh, uh, will play out as a review is is conducted.
0: It was a really um, remarkable hour, however long it was, uh, to see and hear the defense secretary take the questions, admit that he was wrong and how he handled it, but also, especially for a guy who is very, very private, which is how he got to this place in the the first place, uh, talk about having prostate cancer.
3: Yeah, I mean hearing him describe how shook he was by the diagnosis, which for anybody that has gone through this, I don't think will be very surprising. But when you hear it from the defense secretary from the podium in the Pentagon, it, it resonates in, in a slightly different way. And th- he also, I thought, was quite revealing in his thought prophecy. He was pressed being like, how could you possibly during all of that time not have thought to call the president and tell him what's going on? And he was he was just describing, and he says that was wrong, but describing being in a mindset of not wanting to burden anybody else, most specifically the president, with his own personal health problems.
4: Yeah, I actually lost a friend last month to cancer, and she chose not to disclose her diagnosis to some of her friends. I didn't know until she passed away that she even had cancer. And so I think a lot of people watching this coverage or who may have watched the press conference will identify with someone who's for whatever reasons chose not to speak about it and to me it also gives a little bit of clarity as to why some of his closest staff and aides might have gone along with it again we know it's wrong he's secretary austin so he doesn't get that right to privacy, maybe that a private citizen would, but you, you could see his aides responding to Austin the man, Austin the person who they know is private, not what is the best decision for the secretary of defense.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Dana, that that was a remarkable press conference. What struck me was that he didn't parse words when he was saying, I knew that this was wrong, this was a mistake. I apologize. I apologize directly to the president of the United States. I think that is what a lot of people wanted to hear and needed to hear from Secretary Austin after having kept this private and obviously not hearing from him um, in over a month, as Oren said. Um, The thing that I am interested in, I am interested in to see how this report does come out, Mm -hmm. because he did you know, bring up his aides, the thing about the ambulance where they turned off the lights, those sort of decisions saying that it wasn't his decision. He kind of cast blame in a couple of places. So I I am interested to see if there's any further fallout from this, because I do think there's a lot of people who are still very angry, including Republicans and lawmakers on Capitol Hill who want to see more out of this. And Democrats. And Democrats, that's fair. yeah. All right, everybody stand by up next,
0: CNN exclusive reporting on the embattled district attorney prosecuting Donald Trump in Georgia. Will she step down amid allegations of an affair with a fellow prosecutor? All the details coming up. Bipartisan negotiators in the Senate are still promising a deal on tougher border restrictions in exchange for aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. House Republican leaders, of course, have been calling the deal DOA in their chamber. But now some House Republicans are pushing back, supporting the idea of a border deal. Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill. I mean, I have whiplash and I've (laughs) been covering this pretty closely. Is there really... that much of a change from the rank and file inside the House GOP conference?
9: Uh, There really is not among the House GOP conference. In fact, most of them are aligned with Donald Trump, are aligned with the Speaker of the House and say that the Senate border deal, which in fact has not been released yet, but we have gotten reports about what is likely in it and some of the provisions that are in there. They're saying that is essentially dead on arrival. Donald Trump, before even reading the bill, has called it a betrayal and said that Republicans should kill it. of Republicans and Democrats believe that he frankly wants to campaign on border chaos and wants to deny Joe Biden a bipartisan victory on a key issue that shows that poll show is a major vulnerability of his heading into November. But that is not enough of a reason for some Republicans to say it is time to actually get a deal. If there is progress, we should actually get behind a bipartisan proposal in the Senate, because after all, that is what we campaigned on. That was a message coming from one Texas Congressman Dan Crenshaw earlier today.
10: The height of stupidity is having a strong opinion on something you know nothing about. I'm I'm extremely disappointed in the very strange maneuvering by many on the right to to, to torpedo a potential border reform bill. If we have a bill that, on net, significantly decreases illegal immigration, and we sabotage that, that is is inconsistent with what we told our voters we would do. People will make up whatever reasons they, they want to. There's a number of them, I'm sure. But it would be a a pretty unacceptable dereliction of, of your duty.
9: And the question is, where does this go from here? The negotiators in the Senate are still hoping to put out text of this deal as soon as this week. That is what Senator James Langford told reporters earlier today. And and Chris Murphy, one of those three negotiators, said it makes no sense, in his view, for Republicans to walk away from this deal after cutting, after trying to strike one for months and months and months. But that is exactly what they're weighing right now in the upper echelons of the Senate GOP, saying, what is the point of going forward with this Mm -hmm. deal if it's going to get killed? in the House. Mitch McConnell, non-committal about the way forward, even as he supports the underlying elements of this deal. Dan. Manu,
0: I think I want to put that Dan Crenshaw quote on a pillow, uh, talking about being uh, very exercised about people, even though they don't know anything about it. The height of stupidity is being very opinionated about something you don't know anything about. That's the quote. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Manu. A CNN exclusive, we are learning Fulton County D.A. Fonnie Willis has no plans to step down from Georgia uh, and the election subversion case there against Donald Trump. Sources tell CNN that Willis is worried if she leaves, it would effectively end the case. CNN's Zachary Cohen brought us this exclusive reporting and joins us now. So much drama. Uh, What are you hearing from the people around Fonnie Willis about why she is standing firm?
10: Well, look, this is messy. There's no two ways about it. But look, Willis is digging in. That's what my sources say. She is not going to voluntarily take herself out of this case, um, which really does set up this sort of legal showdown, Um, especially over the next two weeks. We know Willis hasn't really directly um, addressed these allegations that she was in this improper romantic relationship with her top prosecutor. Um, She's really been quiet. But behind the scenes, I'm told that she's been um, intimately and directly involved in writing this written response that is she has a deadline tomorrow to turn that in and file that in court. So we're going to see how she addresses this for the first time, potentially as early as tomorrow. Um, she has. You know my sources are saying that she will focus on the merits the legal merits and the legal arguments rather than address the allegations directly she's going to basically say that the lawyers are accusing her of these allegations and jumping to this idea that she should be disqualified they don't know what they're talking about so it remains to be seen um she's also going to be potentially testifying in an open hearing on the on february 15th so a really big two weeks for Bonnie willis coming up. yeah
0: a really big two weeks and this is of course what um Donald Trump wants is to be talking about her and not the case. So that's going to be a consideration, I'm sure. Thank you so much for that great reporting, Zach. Nikki Haley is back on the campaign trail in her home state and brand new polling shows just how much support she actually has from her fellow South Carolinians. Have they got her back? We'll tell you next. A new poll paints a bleak picture for Nikki Haley in her home state. Nearly six in 10 potential South Carolina Republican primary voters say they will vote for Donald Trump over Haley in the state's upcoming presidential primary. That's according to a Monmouth University Washington Post poll. The result comes as Haley kicks off a multi-day swing around that state. That's where CNN's Kylie Atwood is in beautiful Hilton head. What are you hearing from the campaign about what she is going to try to do to turn that around?
11: Yeah, well, listen, the campaign isn't saying much, uh, unsurprisingly, about that poll today, because obviously, if it is an accurate marker of this moment in time, it demonstrates that Nikki Haley has quite a bit of ground to make up here in South Carolina, trailing former President Trump in that Washington Post poll by 26 26- points. And of course, it's important that they uh, point out that she's going to get in front of voters. She's going to be doing a lot of events here in South Carolina. I also want to note that it comes after a few days that she's been focused on fundraising, Dana. We know she was in New York, she was in Florida, and that is critical as well to her campaign to try and continue uh, filling up their bank account. She came into the year with about $14 million in her bank account. That's a substantial amount, but it's about half the amount that Trump's campaign had in the bank account earlier this year. So they are focused on that, in addition to getting in front of voters. And there are two messages here in South Carolina to voters from the campaign. First. They're casting Trump and Biden in the same vein as what they're saying are grumpy old men. They're going to call them stumbling seniors, basement buddies. So they're trying to draw that elderly uh, comparison with those two. And then the other thing they're trying to do here is remind voters what Nikki Haley did in the state when she was governor here. And listen to a digital ad that they put out just today on that
1: it's a great day in South Carolina. You know, when we get to South Carolina, Donald Trump's going to have a harder time falsely attacking me. The great people of South Carolina know I cut their taxes.
11: Now, she went on to talk about what she did uh, for immigration reform here in the state, ethics reform, welfare reform. But we should also note that Trump has dispatched South Carolinian lawmakers who have endorsed him here in South Carolina today to go after Nikki Haley. And we have, of course, seen some of those attacks make an impact, given the fact that her favorability numbers most Washington Post poll mm-hmm. have gone down substantially since September. Dana? Somebody
0: in that campaign is a movie buff. Um, and I, I like that the movies are from, like, an era that I remember. <laughs> mean Girls. Grumpy Old Man is even older, though. But we, we can talk about that later. Um, great hit. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Our panel is back here. Let's just dig in a little bit further uh, to the numbers that Kylie was just talking about and explain how they stand versus where they were just a few months ago. Uh, 58% right now for Donald Trump in South Carolina, 32% for Nikki Haley. In September, 46 for Trump, 18 for uh, Haley. So Nikki Haley has gone up 14 percentage points, but Donald Trump has also gone up 12%. So there is still a very big gap there because she mentioned the favorability rating, I just want to show that as well. Trump has a high favorability rating, much higher than uh, the former governor who he's running against. And so that's another big challenge that she has to make up.
3: That's because Donald Trump is more popular with Republicans than is Nikki Haley, and Republicans dominate the South Carolina Republican uh, primary. So um, this is a similar pattern to what we saw in New Hampshire, right? Donald Trump inside this poll is dominating with conservatives, with Republicans. Yes, Nikki Haley wins moderates and liberals. There just aren't that many of them inside a Republican primary electorate in South Carolina. That's why she's 26 points behind the former president.
5: What are you hearing from Trump world? They I mean exactly what David is saying is what they also tell me that you know they look at New Hampshire they see how well she did with independents and Democrats they're like that is not the game that we're gonna be playing in South Carolina and a lot of them I mean they're still holding out hope the Trump campaign that she'll end up dropping out mm. before South Carolina they think that you know they can continue to embarrass her by parading lawmakers and surrogates around South Carolina people in her own backyard to try and say you know we like Trump more than Nikki Haley and that's gonna continue to be their plan in the lead up to the primary, but oh yes. Well, I was gonna
0: say one of the reasons, one of the reasons, Mm -hmm. not the only one of the reasons she is not dropping out is because she's got money. Yeah. Um, She doesn't have as much money as her uh, competitor, but she has money and she's still raising money as Kylie was just talking about. But on that, let's just look at the cash on hand numbers since uh, the start of 2024. Joe Biden, the incumbent president, 46 million, Donald Trump, $33 $33 million. Nikki Haley, $14.6 million. Um, I just want to focus for a second on the Biden versus Trump number because he's an incumbent president. He's not really playing in the primary space. And he doesn't have that much more money in the bank than Donald Trump, who has been playing in the primary space-ish.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think the cash on hand is an interesting indicator because Biden is doing pretty well with fundraising, but not as well as other incumbents who have, who have you know, gone for a second term as well. But at the end of the day, it's still he's able to boast that he has more money to spend. I think it also is worth noting that because he doesn't have a competitive primary, really, that I think he can say that I'm continuing to raise money, but I don't have to have so much money right this moment. Things are going to heat up for me this summer.
3: And we should just make clear what we don't know, right? We don't know the breakdown of how much of that is primary dollars Mm -hmm. that can be spent in the primary season versus general election dollars. We don't know that for Biden. We don't know that for Trump. And I would just also note, this is a month ago. It's now February 1st. Yeah. So there were two very hotly heavy contested contests, Iowa, New Hampshire, where Haley spent a lot of money. Certainly Trump spent money too. So this is where they started the year. We don't know what it is right now.
0: Yeah, That's a very important point. This is something I've been wanting to talk about and just the news has gotten away from us. Um, $50 million. Trump PACs have spent $50 million on his legal fees. So these are, and this is to cover in 2023, I should say, to cover his legal bills and expenses related to multiple ongoing investigations. I mean, just look at that number. So people are giving to his political organizations or political organizations that support
5: him is the correct way to say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're paying for his legal Yeah, bills. this is donor money. This is, yeah. He is using donor money to pay for of, his legal and expenses. And in a lot of these cases, small dollar. Correct. Oh, mostly. Not It's majority small-dollar donors. Meaning people who don't have $3,000 right.
3: to throw away. Yeah. And the, the fundraising with small-dollar donors for this pot of money, for a big chunk of it, began in the immediate after of 2020 as he was sending out fundraising appeals, telling a lie to them that the election was rigged when it wasn't, and that money is coming in to now pay for the legal bills.
5: Yeah. It's okay. remarkable. I also just think the thing to keep in mind is that number is only likely to grow. I mean, he has four criminal trials if any, or criminal cases. If any of those cases go to trial this year, that's going to grow exponentially. And I don't know how these PACs are gonna be, gonna be able to continue paying for this without potentially Donald Trump having to put up some of his own money. Okay, everybody stand by
0: because up next, we're gonna talk about pull-ups in the Capitol dome. Members spilling the tea on Taylor and Travis and their relationship. Legislating, not so much. What is going on on Capitol Hill? We're going to tell you next. Things are getting weird in Washington. Well, scratch that. Weirder than usual here in Washington. Yesterday, Republican Georgia Congressman Richard McCormick admitted to doing pull-ups, pull-ups, at the top of the Capitol dome.
9: It wasn't dangling over, you know, whatever. But, you know, like, like I said, it's, I'm a Marine.
2: I know safety. I'm an ER doc. I know safety.
0: And I like the tie, too. The Taylor Swift uh, conspiracy controversy, that is continuing in an incredible way on Capitol Hill. Some Republicans and right-wing commentators are continuing to push the theory that the Super Bowl is going to be rigged. Listen to what Seth Meyers did to illustrate the absurdity of all of this.
10: Joe Biden is the 46th president. He's running for a second term. 46 times 2 is 92. Travis Kelsey's number is 87. 92 minus 87 is 5. What has five sides? The Pentagon. (laughs)
0: My panel is back with me now. Um, Okay, let's just quickly just um, finish off this McCormick pull-up thing because I have been, have you guys been on the Capitol tour? Mm -hmm. It is treacherous. Okay, I'm not a Marine. I'm not an ER doctor. I may or may not have a huge fear of heights but to be okay
3: you can see that from
0: the outside just think of the the tippy tippy top there and then you're on the inside and
5: it's a balcony
3: just below the statue you're saying yes Mm -hmm.
5: and it's very uh treacherous yes i mean and we were just discussing this but It's dangerous, and I think that's He was saying that it's overblown. I saw he told CNN, you know, it's overblown. Everyone's making too much of a deal out of this. But um, for the people who work in the Capitol and the people who give these tours, Mm -hmm. that is their key concern. That's something not only is gonna happen to a person on a tour, but a member of Congress on a tour. I mean, that's where a lot of this is coming from, and it is very weird. So let's talk about the issue that David, as our political director,
0: wants us to lead every hour with, which of course is the Taylor Swift story. (laughs) I'm kidding. Let's listen to what some Republicans are saying on Capitol Hill. They are saying, Tommy Tuberville, football is football, he should know. Hopefully we stay closer to that than we can all this social media. Eric Schmidt, if they're both in love, good for them. I have a 13 year old, that's a huge Taylor Swift fan and our favorite, Roger Marshall. Uh, The senator says, everyone should embrace the Travis and Tay-Tay story. (laughs) I think it's a great story, an American love story, something that Walt Disney wrote. I mean, these are actual conversations being had, (laughs) and it's because they're hearing in their conservative sort of echo chambers about um, concern, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud again, that Taylor Swift is gonna use her fame and connect it to the NFL and get Democrats Um, registered and pushed the election over to Joe Biden.
3: I mean, I think it's a fair concern of Republicans that Taylor Swift is very popular and has indicated her Democratic leanings in the past and has proven the ability to get her fans to register and be politically active. I think all of that is a fair concern, but it seems pretty much on the level and out there. I don't think there's some conspiracy about that. And now it's being married up with the most viewed Uh, events in American culture, which are NFL football games. So again, I I think that the conspiracy concern seems completely outlandish.
0: Also, Also, she's like one of the most powerful women in the world. I don't think she needs Travis Kelsey to help get people registered if she wants to. I have to play what he said about all this.
8: We're two people in a relationship, uh, supporting each other and having fun with it, man. It's it's nothing more than that. And uh, how, how much the world wants to paint the paint the picture and uh, make us the enemy. Um, we just have fun with it.
0: Um, I think that. I was going to say, I think my son is going to be very proud of me that I played Travis Kelsey (laughs) on the show, but maybe not so much as it relates to Taylor Swift. Thanks for having the fun conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break.